0: For a creature that remains undocumented and unknown, the debates over Bigfoot are surprisingly divisive. All groups have factions and alliances and disputes, and the Bigfoot community is no different, arguing over the fine points of where Bigfoot lives, how best to track them, what they eat, where they sleep, and, as we've heard, whether it's kosher to kill one. But the most obvious division is between the scientific researchers and something called the woo. The woo is the easy way out if you can't explain it. It's all aliens. Aliens shot Bigfoot off. That's what it is. I mentioned the woo very briefly back in episode three when we talked about evidence, like footprints and sounds and photographs. It's a subset of Bigfoot society that subscribes to magic, to the paranormal, and they have all kinds of theories that are pretty out there, like the idea that Bigfoot can cloak itself.
1: I've seen things in the woods that, the only way I can explain it is there was something that was cloaked. Very much like you would see in the movie Predator, of this thing moving through the brush and, and it's a shimmering, transparent effect.
0: Or that it exists in a different dimension.
1: This is more, more evidence to support the uh, multi-dimensional, interdimensional, the Sasquatch walking in two worlds.
0: Or the Bigfoot is an alien.
1: So uh, you may say, well, how do they get there? Uh, They were dropped off by a spaceship.
0: And this is just the tip of the iceberg. A whole lot of people put paranormal spins on Sasquatch. It drives serious Bigfoot researchers crazy. Why do they call it the woo?
2: So it it got
1: termed woo, you know, as woo. (laughs) It's out there, woo.
0: (laughs) There's a pretty stark line between the woo and the science-minded. But the world tends to lump all Bigfoot people into one group which makes things that much harder for those approaching Bigfoot scientifically. The woo is silly. It's fantastical. It's the stuff of tabloids. And it captures the attention of the general public, turning everything related to Bigfoot into something of a joke. For those with a more rational, scientific approach, people like my cousin Grover Krantz, it makes it harder to talk about Bigfoot and to be taken seriously. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing, a series about Sasquatch science and society, the search for Bigfoot, and why we want so badly for it to be real. Grover considered Sasquatch a flesh-and-blood creature, one beholden to the laws of physics and nature. He'd go to conferences or appear on a call-in show trying to make a rational case for Bigfoot's existence and then get cornered by people convinced of supernatural Sasquatch.
3: Well, one guy said they're made of titanium. and um, Another guy says they come in and out of space warps, all sorts of weird stuff, so that the public looks at him and says, hey, this guy's nuts. Mm -hmm. And the scientists look at him and say, I know he's nuts. So it makes the whole field look silly, and um, the scientists and the serious researchers tend to back off.
0: Roger Lajeunesse was one of Grover's graduate students at Washington State, and the two eventually became good friends. Lajeunesse says that the woo would appear every time Grover gave a talk.
1: He, he had problems with these people. He, would, he gave a talk in Seattle about Bigfoot. When the talk was over, a young, young lad came up, and very kind of quiet, and kind of tugged on his shirt and said, "You know, I know where these Sasquatches come from. You know, they're extraterrestrial. And that's exactly what Grover was plagued with.
0: Grover never knew if someone with useful information might approach him, so he had to hear people out. Lajeunesse himself got a taste of this. After leaving Washington State, he went on to teach anthropology at Fresno State in California. And although skeptical about Bigfoot, he thought it would be fun to do a short course on the evidence.
1: The number of people who crawled out the woodwork on that were staggering. And I got single space letters from people. I got telephone calls. I just sat there and listened. I thought, you know, this is transcendental lunacy. I know what Grover went, I know what he went through.
0: (laughs) Jeff Meldrum has had similar experiences. He's the anthropology professor from Idaho State, the guy that basically picked up the Bigfoot mantle from Grover. He finally had to make it clear that he was not interested in hearing woo theories.
4: The first time I really said it in public, the analogy I I use was I said, look, the train has left the station and there's a fork in the track. And if you want to be on the train whose destination is the scientific acknowledgement and documentation of this creature, then then you need to be on this train.
0: But if you want to pursue paranormal Bigfoot, well...
4: Don't expect the scientific community to, to acknowledge that kind of data.
0: It's been hard enough to get them to even acknowledge the possibility of Sasquatch. More often than not, there's a strong negative reaction to any serious inquiry into Bigfoot. Grover definitely felt it firsthand and described the experience during a radio interview.
3: Well, basically, um, it makes you um, look bad in the eyes of your peers and your superiors. If you support an uh, unusual um, out-of-the-mainstream theory then uh, you don't get uh, promotions, you don't get pay raises, and um, you don't get uh, financial support and recognition
0: for a lot of things. His fourth wife, Diane Horton, remembers the effect his Sasquatch work had on his career. People told him that as long as he held
5: those beliefs, he wasn't going to go far academically.
0: Many of his colleagues in Washington State's anthropology department found him to be an embarrassment.
5: Later on, he'd say a lot of them like in his department, were afraid to lose their credibility in other areas. They were
0: just scared. They tried to prevent his promotion to full professor. He eventually got it, but it was very touch and go and required the chair of the department, a personal friend, to pull rank. A couple decades later, Jeff Meldrum had a similar experience.
4: I was fully aware of the ridicule and the grief that had been heaped upon Grover, you know, uh, the times he was the butt of a joke. And I remember having that thought, that moment when I said to myself, okay, do you really want to go down this path? Is this what you want your, the direction you want your career to go?
0: But he figured it couldn't be that tough. Times had changed, right? And the world was more open to different ideas? Whoops!
4: But I didn't have tenure, <laughs> and uh, the thought never occurred to me that it might compromise my career in that way. Because I, you know, again, I was quite naive in that respect, and uh, as a result, it was a it was an arduous experience getting through the, the tenure and promotion process to associate professor. I mean, to illustrate how bad it was, the the, uh, acting chair at that time had been heard to say, Meldrum will never be promoted to full professor so long as I'm chair of this department.
0: Even after the chair retired, he continued trying to prevent Meldrum's promotion. Meldrum had to go through a formal grievance process to get around the man, and the whole experience left him feeling pretty jaded.
4: My idealism was dashed. <laughs> and I and yeah, it revealed a very unseemly um, underbelly of the uh, academic community. You know that ivory tower is is rather uh, oftentimes very tarnished. The ideals of objective scientific just the pure quest for knowledge is is anything but
0: Maybe he's idealizing this quest for knowledge. I mean, the ivory tower has always had something of a tarnished facade and is often a pretty petty place, but I'm not sure I understand why the Bigfoot question causes such a kerfuffle. What people like Meldrum and Grover and the others are doing doesn't seem that insane, especially since they're trying to apply the scientific method. But because of the woo, it's hard to be taken seriously. Grover pointed this out in a lecture he gave 30-some-odd years ago.
3: Very few scientists have been willing even to look at or listen to the information that is available. Mostly this is because they fear for their scientific reputations if it became known that they were interested in such
4: things.
0: Small wonder, then, that those with a professional reputation to protect don't always want to be open about their interest in Bigfoot. Wild Thing fans, I have a serious message for you. If you're not already talking to your kids about aliens, it's probably time to start. Just this year alone, the James Webb Space Telescope found distant planets that might harbor life. Archaeologists claimed to have found mummified aliens. And extraterrestrials even got a shout out during congressional hearings. No doubt your kids are asking lots of questions, and it could be you're not sure how to answer them. Let me recommend my new book, Is There Anybody Out There?, which arrives on Earth on October 3rd. This middle-grade book, based on Season 2 of Wild Thing, explores the question of whether we're alone in the universe using science, humor, and fun illustrations. And it'll leave everyone better prepared for the possibility of alien life. Help kids learn how to tell the difference between science fact and science fiction. Look for Is There Anybody Out There? in all bookstores and online. Or for more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. Early on a gray, wintry morning, I make the drive out to a quiet suburban neighborhood to meet an anonymous source. He only agreed to record an interview with me after months of background conversations and explicit promises to keep his identity safe and disguise his voice. Because this is a man who worries that if people knew about his Bigfoot interest, it could jeopardize his job.
2: No way. I was in a, I was in a profession where um, it could have been detrimental to uh, express an interest in the legitimacy of this phenomenon.
0: We sit down in the basement of his split-level home, I would have preferred an abandoned parking garage in the dead of night, but what can you do? His name is obviously off limits, so we'll call him Deepfoot. Deepfoot works for a government science agency.
2: You know, I still have a uh, a position where um, credibility on scientific issues is important, and um, I work in a field where uh, there is considerable political efforts to undermine the the acceptance of the scientific conclusions.
0: And how do you think the most vocal critics of government and science would react if they knew that somewhere in the depths of this top research institution, someone was seriously involved in the search for Sasquatch, no matter how scientific his approach? With the usual vitriol, a barrage of insulting tweets, news anchors and talking heads ripping into him. An excuse to cast doubt on any and all research from his agency and, of course, a reason to slash funding. Deepfoot has imagined all these potential scenarios and would really prefer to avoid them.
2: Well, I think we all have, you know, there, there are, uh, we all have things that intrigue us that we don't a, go around and talk to other people about because of what we anticipate the response to be.
0: So he explores his interests alone to protect himself and his colleagues. He's not 100% certain that Bigfoot's out there. He just thinks it's a question worth exploring. He keeps an eye open for tracks and other signs when he's out hunting. And Deepfoot prefers to research the topic independently, rather than join some sort of Sasquatch society. While he's kind of an extreme example of the closeted Bigfooter, I can understand where he's coming from.
2: If you want to maintain some professional credibility in certain circles, this is, this is not a subject that you want to uh, wave a flag over and ask difficult
0: questions about. Society at large is okay with Bigfoot as a joke, as tongue-in-cheek fun. But actually searching for Sasquatch? That could ruin your career. One other point. Deepfoot worries that this antagonism toward Bigfoot could indicate a much bigger problem.
2: It's a deeply unsettling possibility that science has a blind spot big enough to hold and hide the greatest ape that ever lived.
0: Um, a blind spot that only a small segment of the population is aware of and hopes to expose? I'll be honest, that idea makes me raise my eyebrows a bit. There's a whiff of conspiracy theory about it. So I asked Deepfoot about this. This is not about a cover-up, he says. It's about how the general public perceives Bigfoot.
2: Well, society gives you signals all around. I mean, Bigfoot stories are in the fodder of the National Enquirer, not Scientific American. Uh, You know, the way that society treats this, um, uh, the representations of Sasquatch in in popular culture. You don't need to be a sociologist to figure out that there's a, a taboo around this subject.
0: There is something to this. Speaking personally, I'm sometimes embarrassed to tell people I'm researching Bigfoot worried that it might get me labeled as a crackpot, as someone who's frivolous or ridiculous. I know how most people think of Bigfoot. Case in point, when I reached out to evolution experts about the possibility of Bigfoot's existence, a couple of them just refused to talk to me, turned me down flat. Deepfoot sees this as antithetical to what science is all about.
2: Our success as a society is based on taking a uh, a, a cognitive approach that. Ask questions, forms hypotheses, collects evidence, and tests the evidence against the hypotheses.
0: And Deepfoot argues that that's not really happening with Bigfoot.
2: There are some subjects where we resist asking the questions. Like, is there a giant bipedal ape that lives in the corners of our continent?
0: Well, is there? That's a question that John Mayansinski wanted to know the answer to. We met him back in the eyewitness episode. He'd seen a big, hairy hand come down over his tent. In the 1970s, Myanzinski worked for Wyoming's game and fish department. He and some colleagues found some weird hairs near a supposed Sasquatch sighting and sent them in for analysis. When word of that got back to Myanzinski's boss, a guy named Bill Hepworth, he was not happy.
4: Bill Hepworth walked in, and he, he just was red in the face, and he yelled at us and pointed fingers at us and said he was not in the business of promoting mythological animals in this lab.
0: A complete dressing down in front of the entire office.
4: And that if any of us ever had our names associated with the word Bigfoot, in the future he would see to it personally we'd be fired. And he was yelling and screaming and pointing at us and then he left and that was it.
0: Mein had been scheduled to take the game and fish exam to become a warden, but he gave up after that. He felt he couldn't work for them if that was their attitude towards scientific exploration. This inability to ask questions, to explore, without being ridiculed is frustrating for many Bigfoot people, especially those who are pursuing this interest with rigor. So because scientists won't listen to them, they largely rely on each other to share information and best practices— like how to attract a Bigfoot, or cast footprints, or search for trace evidence. They've created safe spaces to share this info online in various forums and chat rooms, but it's way more fun to get together at one of the dozens of Bigfoot conferences held annually, like the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, the International Bigfoot Conference, or the Texas Bigfoot Conference, which is different from the Southeast Texas Bigfoot Conference. You get the point. But if you want to spend time with the creme de la creme of the Bigfoot community, the legends of the field, the most science-minded researchers, you go to Beachfoot. That is, if you can get an invite.
1: The whole genesis of of Beachfoot... The private,
0: super-exclusive Bigfoot event is in its 11th year and caters to the most credible authorities in the field. They meet every summer for a weekend, usually at a park in western Oregon, for a Sasquatch symposium and Uh, campout.
1: It seems like yesterday, it it was 2008, when we had our first beach in Otis, Oregon.
0: Tents crowd the tree line, and the picnic pavilion does double duty as a lecture hall. It It would seem like a totally normal camping excursion or family reunion, except for all the Bigfoot merchandise. Oh, and the giant blue inflatable gorilla in red swim trunks. I guess you could say he's a stand-in for Bigfoot. Wearing green sunglasses and holding a giant rubber ducky, his name is Marty, and he belongs to the hosts of Beachfoot, Todd and Diane Nice.
3: We own it.
0: Diane's stocking niece is one of the grand poobas of this event, for which Marty sets the vibe.
3: It was started for researchers to come, relax,
0: not be stressed out, just you know, sit around a campfire, have a beer, and just you know, change ideas around and talk to other researchers. And her husband, Todd Niece, is the guy who created the whole thing. He made a deliberate decision to keep this event small and private.
1: If we open this up to the public, that uh, we could have 500 people here and, and frankly make a lot of money. That's not, not the point. And
0: that's why it's invitation only. It's not for the general public to come in. And it's definitely not for the woo. Uh,
1: our reputation is is important to us and people know that we're very serious about this and we're very grounded in in biology and in a science scientific approach to this so we have to be careful who we associate with we do scientific research it's flesh and blood so we're
3: not gonna have woos here we're not gonna you know no it's not gonna happen
0: (laughs) for squatchers interested in the biology of bigfoot Beachfoot is one of the few events they're willing to attend. Partially because the woo is kept out. And then of course, there's the exclusivity factor.
1: Everybody wants to be on that A-list and and without an invitation, they're not getting in. We start out in 2008 with about 30 people and we try to keep it below 100 and and it's it's tough. But if we did not keep the numbers low, I can almost assure you that all, all these big name researchers probably wouldn't come. So we keep it small, private, exclusive, and and I think that's a big part of the draw.
0: So how did I get on the A-list and score an invitation? I totally name-dropped Cousin Grover, a Bigfoot researcher that this group holds in high regard and speaks of in almost reverent tones.
1: I actually had the fortune of uh, knowing all four of the uh, what they call the four horsemen of sesquatchery, I guess is how they say it, but uh, I knew Grover, uh, John Green, uh, Renata Hinden. I-, I met all of them personally. Peter Byrne, who's with us today, and uh, the real pioneers in Bigfoot research.
0: Those four guys, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery, pursued Bigfoot methodically and tried to change the taboo surrounding it. They inspired the next generation of Sasquatch researchers, and many of that generation are here this weekend, like Kathy Strain, We met her back in episode four. She's the anthropologist who collected all those Native American Sasquatch stories in a book. And her Bigfoot interest? It got her in some hot water at her first job with the U.S. Forest Service. She'd seen an opportunity to do a program about Bigfoot and Native American legends, which are particularly significant in the part of California where she was working.
5: When I was a district archaeologist on the Sequoia National Forest back in like,
0: 1992, maybe,
5: I had bought a cast from Grover Krantz.
0: She's talking about a cast of a Bigfoot
5: footprint. For educational purposes, because, you know, we have the hairy man pictographs right there. We're adjacent to the reservation, and I wanted to do a display um, on Bigfoot so that the people would know the history of what this area represents. And boy, did I get a stern put down from my district ranger at the time, and I... I was a little horrified. I was a new
0: employee. And mind you, she wanted to do something about local tribal culture, not some sort of display proving Bigfoot's existence. He basically, well, I
5: can't repeat what he said, but he basically said, no way don't you ever approach anybody about this again. It's inappropriate.
0: We're not into advocating that they exist. She's not sure why her boss was so upset, but she knew she better keep her mouth shut about her interests. And she spent the next decade thinking she was pretty much alone in them. Then came the internet. So late one night, she went online and typed in the word Bigfoot, just to see what was out there.
5: And the first thing that came up was the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, the BFRO, and I went, whoa, there's other people out here that believe in Bigfoot, and they even have an organization. And I sent in a note, and the next thing I know, I get a phone call from them, and they go, you're an anthropologist, and you believe in Bigfoot? How would you like to join our organization?
0: I went, yeah, of course, oh my god. For the first time, she had other people, scientists even, to talk to about her interests. Dr. Krantz was a member
5: of that, and Dr. Meldrum. I remember getting a really nice email from Dr. Krantz, going, you know, just you got to have tough skin to be doing this, and you know, just just so you know that there's a lot of people that won't take you seriously, and you may now not advance in your career because you're in this group, and and I really appreciated that that sage advice at that time, and and for many years until let's say I joined in 1998. And I didn't go like public until like 2003 when I finally felt like this is where I'm going to be the rest of my life. I like my job. I don't need to worry about
0: advancing. She attended her first conference that year in 2003 and finally met all the people she'd only known in online chat rooms.
5: And it was just monumental that I felt I'd come out of the, a closet and I was welcomed and the information I had was appreciated. And that's what sent me on my mission of I need to put it in a
0: book. Her book is called Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot in Native Culture, and it cemented her as an expert in the community. While she's less worried about blowback now, it's places like Beachfoot, with other Bigfoot people, where she feels completely comfortable. For J.C. Williams, who spends much of his time in the woods alone, Beachfoot is a chance to get information from other like-minded researchers and share what he knows before going back out to the wilderness to continue the search.
3: This phenomenon, to me, is far more than a mythology or a folklore. It has substance. There's something here. And if men like Dr. Krantz and Dr. Meldrum and and others who are scientists, they've taken the time to look into it objectively. And they found something. And that intrigues me.
0: Williams served in both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. He's got a thick, dark beard and dark brown eyes and smokes a pipe. He lives in Georgia and he drove here to Oregon for Beachfoot. And Then after this, I'm I'm going up into the Blues to investigate
3: and see what I can find.
0: The Blues, those are the Blue Mountains outside of Walla Walla, Washington. And he'll be there for 45 days. For Williams, Bigfoot is not a hobby or a weekend distraction.
3: It's a full-time project. For me, and you know, to do this, it takes a lot of money to acquire this stuff, uh, to drive to Oregon to buy food that will last me.
0: Not to mention all the research gear
3: parabolic dish, microphones, you know, Sennheiser mics, uh, plaster, outfitting the truck a little bit.
0: And then there's all the prep and training
3: first aid, wilderness medicine training tracking classes in Montana, uh, a bioacoustic course I took in uh, Virginia, the Smithsonian Mason School of Conservation.
0: If you're wondering how much something like this might cost?
3: I I have spent several, several thousand dollars just for this trip. I was able to uh, get some sponsorship.
0: A friend who owns a Bigfoot museum in Georgia provided a little money to support Williams' expedition
3: which of course offset my costs a little bit. Some discounts from certain companies to get certain pieces of equipment, and uh, that'll help tremendously. But again, if I wasn't serious about it, sometimes I do kind of wonder, geez, that was a lot of money for a, but, but no, it's, it's worth it.
0: Williams might be considered lucky in this community. He's got some money set aside to do this kind of thorough exploration. But more importantly, he's got time. And one of the advantages to being full-time on Bigfoot, as opposed to a weekend Sasquatch warrior, is that you're not as concerned about what other people think. And you don't have to worry about jeopardizing your career. So here's my question. Right now, there are scientists searching for life on other planets and trying to prove that the universe is a hologram. or looking for ways to put consciousness in a bottle Those seem like pretty woo ideas, but I don't see the same level of derision towards them. So why is Bigfoot different? People like Grover Krantz and Jeff Meldrum are trying to pose a hypothesis and find evidence to back it up, which is something scientists do all the time. I'm not sure I see what's wrong with that. It would certainly be a moment of vindication if Bigfoot turned out to be real, not only for Meldrum, but for Grover and all the others who are convinced of Bigfoot's existence. Maybe the DNA samples from those ground nests will end up being the decisive proof they need. Speaking of which, nothing yet. We still don't have any results, and the wait is killing me. But it looks like I'll be waiting a little longer. It doesn't help that someone is always trying to sell Sasquatch to me. I've got Bigfoot on the brain. And after the next episode of Wild Thing, you will too. Later this week, you can hear a special bonus episode, our extended interview with Peter Byrne, a 93-year-old Bigfoot hunter, and the last of the four horsemen of Sasquatchery. Don't keep your love for Bigfoot or this show a secret. Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. This really helps us get the word out about wild things. And go to our website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's wildthingpodcast, all one word. We're also on the usual social media suspects. Find us at Wild Thing Pod. And if you see Sasquatch in the wild, make sure to snap a photo, blurry or otherwise, and share it using the hashtag wildthingpod. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. Wild Thing is created, reported, and produced by me, Laura Krantz, with help from Kelsey Ray. Alisa Barba is our editor, Scott Carney is our executive producer. Our music is composed by Ramteen Arablui and mixed by Sanaz Meshkinpur.